I first became a, a Christian at age 21, I was very passionate, zealous, following Jesus, and I was so excited for the very first time I knew the truth, and I had reasons for it. I would tell people about those reasons, and I shared the gospel with all of my friends and family, and then sometimes I didn't do it the best way, to the extent that they were sick of me, right? Thanksgiving, every Thanksgiving meal became an evangelistic encounter. We all know how that is, right? So, but I noticed something, is that even though I believed certain things were sinful and wrong, I still did them. I struggled with anger, a lack of forgiveness. I was very, you know, when you first know something is true, you feel like uh, you get arrogant and self-righteous, and you think, oh, everybody's an idiot around me. And I struggled with that, and so I had impatience with people. I wasn't gracious and kind as I should be, and I still struggle with that today. And so it was a great upsetting thing to me that me, who was so passionate about Christ, I had this remaining sin inside of me, and I'm sure you've all experienced that. And so I just was so upset, and I, I'll never forget this, but I went up to my pastor at the time, Pastor Riddlebarger, and I said, you know, I struggle with sin so much, these sins in my life, am I still a Christian? Because you have that worry when you struggle with sin. You're like, gosh, am I even saved? And he said this to me, and I'll never forget this, one of the most comforting things a minister's ever said to me. He said, well, if you are struggling with sin, that is a sign that you are a Christian. And I thought, oh, wow, that is so cool. That, that is actually an assurance of my salvation. It's not something that takes away my assurance that I am uh, in Christ and saved and I have all these benefits. And that, that is one of the most helpful things I've ever heard from somebody. And uh, he appealed to Romans 7, to the struggle with sin that Paul has. And I have to be honest with you, I'm, uh, I'm going to be upfront with you. There are some people who do not, who are Christian, that don't take that uh, understanding of Romans 7. Some people think that, uh, that Paul is not presently talking about a believer. Uh, some believers would, some Christians would say that Romans 7 is not about Paul as a mature believer, but it is in fact about a, a person who, like Paul, who was a first century Jew, not a Christian, just a Jew who hasn't accepted Jesus, trying to struggle to keep the law. And so that's what Romans 7 is about, is nothing about the Christian life. And um, so now as we look through this, we're going to see that the text does not only support the idea that this is a mature Christian believer struggling with sin, but we're going to find that this lines up with our personal experience struggling with sin. I mean, goodness, it certainly lines up with my personal experience struggling with sin. So the thought is, is if Paul, who's an apostle, right, this guy, I mean, I think every person here would say, yeah, Paul is a mature Christian. If he is struggling with sin the same way I'm struggling with sin, then I can be assured I'm just living the Christian life and I'm saved and that I'm, I'm experiencing not something weird or bizarre, but something that every Christian experiences. This is assuming, of course, one believes in Christ, one believes in the gospel that you're saved by faith and grace alone by the death, resurrection of Jesus, and they believe in the one true God of Scripture. So this verse is so important because if, if this is not about the Christian life, then this, that there's no text that has a detailed outline of what our life is to look like Monday through Saturday or, or Monday through, through Sunday, whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't, there's no verse in the Bible that outlines what the day-to-day -day Christian life looks like. Now, some people will say, well, you know, look at James 3, 2. James 3, 2 mentions that Christians struggle with sin, so I'm going to read that verse. It does mention this. It says, for we all stumble in many ways. It says that. It says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole 
body. Well, we all mess up saying things, that's for sure. But, so, but this is not a detailed account of the Christian life. This is not a detailed life of what the Christian life looks like every day. And so here's my point. If Romans 7 is not about the Christian life, then we have no detailed first-person, first-hand experience, experiential account in the Bible of what my life's supposed to look like, you know, on the Mondays or day-to-day. And so we have no account of what it's like. We have no outlined experience in the Bible. And so whether you take this to be a believer or an unbeliever, as I said, I think the evidence will show it's a believer. It makes a huge difference, a massive difference. And we're going to see that this is a mature believer struggling with sin. And it's going to match up with your experience. And I hope and I pray that comforts you as much as it's comforted me as I've lived out my Christian life. So looking first at Romans 7, 7. It says, what shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not been, if yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. And covet's like, you know, like a lusting over someone's car. Uh, or, uh, you know, a house or, you know, where a position a person has, a position of power. So it's like lusting over something, anything. Covet's a broad term. And he uses covet here because that, you know, all the breaking of the Ten Commandments can be summarized in that way that people covet things and so they do things that are wrong to, to, to achieve, you know, certain ends. They, they use their own sinful power to, to try to achieve certain ends. They don't get it. So coveting is, is the root of almost all of our problems in many ways. So that's why he mentions covet, which is the last commandment, the Ten Commandments. So Paul, you know, has been saying that the law makes people sin. It makes people, people think the law makes people good, but no, what Paul is saying knows the law makes people bad. And so the, the thought comes up naturally. Well, if that's true, is the law sinful? If the law makes me bad, is the law bad? And he says here in verse seven, no, 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 no. It's not the law that's bad. It's us that's bad in response to the law. You know, when you see a speeding or see a speed limit sign, and you break it, you know, it's not the problem with the sign. The problem is with you. And that's the, the point here Paul is trying to say. But the law does show us we can't measure up. And when it, when it shows us that we can't measure up, we don't want to follow it even more. The law, for me, is like going to a doctor. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you've had this experience. Maybe it's just me. But, you know, I think, like, I'm doing pretty good health-wise, you know? Look at yourself in the mirror. Like, I'm pretty, I'm a, you know, pretty good-looking. I'm, You know, I got this all together. I don't have thoughts like that, but you know what I mean. You, you get the idea, okay? Whatever. I don't, I don't feel like I'm doing that bad health-wise, but, and I'm like, I, I feel like I'm doing great here. But then I go to the doctor, and I find out that I've got high blood pressure. I've lowered it, by the way. I found that. I didn't know I lowered it. How could I tell? I don't go to the doctor. But, and they give you all this blood work and they go, oh, you don't have vitamin D and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you would never even know that. Like living the day-to-day life, you think you're, I'm in pretty good health. I'm a healthy guy, you know. And then you, and that's, people get shocking news. They feel perfectly fine. They go to the doctor and they find out they have cancer, you know, through a scan or something like this. And so the law is like that doctor who tells you, you know, you don't even know it, but you're doomed health-wise. There's nothing they can do. Your disease or cancer is terminal. And, you know, people hear that and they're like, well, I'm going to die anyways. Time to hit in and out, right? Don't hit anywhere else. Hit in and out and get some double-double animal fries. I know it's a good plug for in and out, isn't it? It's very, it's like an advertisement. I'm from California, so in and outs of course. That's why I moved here to Utah, because I wanted to stick with it, right? So, but, you know, I mean, you order double-double animal, you know, and you order animal fries. By the way, these are really good. You want to try this on the menu. And, you know, I'm going to die soon anyways, 
So might as well as just like eat all I want and, you know, enchiladas and here we go. And people just give up on their health when they realize they're going to die, you know, just live up the last part of your life and there's no hope anyways. And the law is kind of like that. It offers a diagnosis that, that's bad with no solution. And verse 7, uh, 8 here, he goes on to describe this, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, meaning I want this, I want that, I want to do the opposite of this. So for apart from the law, sin lies dead. The Bible, I love it, it gets people right here when it says sin lies dead uh, and how the law does this kind of thing. It makes us worse in many ways because it shows that there's something broken and irrational in all of us, myself included. You know, when someone tells you you shouldn't do something, you want to do it all of a sudden. You want to do the opposite of what people say or what the law says or anything like that. And there's this kind of momentary joy from doing this kind of irrational thing going against the norms. And uh, St. Augustine an ancient Christian described this reality better than anyone in his confessions, book two, chapter four, I'm going to read this. It's so epic what he, what he says here, and he's so honest. That's why I love Augustine. He's honest about himself and human nature. He says, near a vineyard, there was a pear tree loaded with fruit. Though the fruit was not particularly attractive, either in color or taste, I and the, some other youths conceived the idea of shaking off the pears, this tree, and carrying them away. We set out a, a late night. All bad things happen late at night. That's why old people go to sleep so early, because they're wise. And stole all the fruit that we could carry. And this was not to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few. But then we threw the rest to the pigs. Our real pleasure was simply doing something that was not allowed. I had plenty better bear pears on my own. He had his own pear tree that's better. I, I only took these ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away, and all I had tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. So he didn't need it, but he wanted to feel that wickedness. There's something inherently irrational about evil. It just it does it for the sake of evil. There's no, there's no like reason or rhyme to evil. It is at its core, if we think about it, completely and utterly self-destructive, irrational. It burns down everything. And I hear Augustine's example. I think of a, a less highbrow example. I think of uh, Batman, Dark Knight, and Alfred's reference to the thief. And he compares it to the Joker's behavior. I'm going to read this part. Uh, he says, A long time ago, I was in Burma with my, and my friends and I were working for the local government. They were trying to buy the loyalty of tribal leaders by bribing them with precious stones. But their uh, caravans were being raided in the forest of Argoon by a bandit. So we went looking for the stones, but in six months, we never met anybody who traded with him. One day I saw a child playing with a ruby the size of a tangerine. The bandit had been throwing them away. And then Bruce Wayne, in his non-Batman voice, you know, when he's Bruce Wayne, he's like, talks normally. He's Batman, he's like, I'm Batman, you know. But in his normal voice, he says, why steal them? So he's like, hey, what's the point of all this? Why, why is the bandit stealing if he's just throwing them away to kids? He says, well, because he thought it was good sport, because some men aren't looking for anything logical like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated. Some men just want to watch the world burn down. And so he's likening that to Joker. And the Joker is the perfect example of the embodiment of the irrationality of sin. 
So you might ask, well, why do people give in to this irrational behavior? What makes them so irrational? Is there any expl explanation behind this tick in human nature? And the answer is, deep down, every one of us, when that law comes to us to tell us what to do, we want to do opposite of that because it's an infringement on our own control. It's an infringement on our own personal sovereignty. You see, inside of us is the sin of Adam and Eve. We want to be like God. We want to call the shots. We don't want to, when we hear that commandment, we're like, oh no, I don't want to follow that. I want to do things my way. I want to be Lord over my life. I want to be the captain of my ship. Don't tell me what to do. And so that is the irrational sin we struggle with every day. Paul goes on to talk about the weight of the law and how it affects us and exposing these these cosmic crimes inside of us against God, Romans 7, 9 through 12. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that, that promised life proved to be death to me for sin seizing opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it, it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So what Paul is talking about here is a time in his life where he thought he was, you know, kind of a big deal. He was doing really spiritually good. And he thought he was spiritually alive, thought he was spiritually good. He didn't understand the full weight of, of God's law. He didn't understand fully what the law required. And this is like people today. If you've watched evangelists on the street, there's all these YouTube videos on this. But, you know, the evangelist, as it, as it says, he goes up to a... Um, uh, to a person on the street. It's always in Huntington Beach for whatever reason. There's like a beach in the background. But, you know, so I guess, I guess there's a lot of people that need to be talking to at Huntington Beach. But anyways, so this evangelist comes up to some guy in Huntington Beach and they'll ask him, so, uh, you know, if, are you a good person? He'll ask him. He says, yes. So if you were to go to heaven or if you were to die, would you go to heaven? And the person says, yeah, yeah, sure. I'm a good person. God, if I were to die right now, I would go straight to heaven. And so, and, and so what the evangelist does is he goes into the Ten Commandments and he says, okay, so you think you're a good person? You think you're spiritually alive now apart from the law? And he says, okay, well, have you ever told a lie? And then every person says, yes, I've told a lie. He's like, all right, so you're a liar. He's like, have you ever lusted? He says, yes, yeah, so you've committed adultery in your heart. He's like, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? He says, yes, yeah, so you're an adulterer, lying blasphemer. You've lusted, you've used the Lord's name in vain. These are things everybody does. And so he says, so if you think God's going to allow into heaven a lying blasphemer adulterer? And finally they realize what they're up against. Like, no. And so that's what, if you don't have the law, you, you kind of think like, I'm doing pretty good. I'm a good, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm kind of a good guy. The law comes this year, a blasphemer. You can't keep it together on the 15 freeway. You know, you're, 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 you're covetous. You always want, you know, this car, this house, more money, more stuff. And so the law comes and it says, no, you're not so good. You're not, you're not doing terrific at all. And Paul has this experience too. Paul is describing his personal experience and it lines up perfectly with what he says about himself in Philippians 3, 4 through 9. So he describes himself kind of like these people thinking, I'm a pretty good person. He says in verse 4 of Philippians 3, 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, I, I can talk about how I used to be thinking I was really spiritually good and religious. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Look at, how, look at my credentials. Look how amazing I am. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, a Pharisee as to zeal, a, a persecutor of the church. And this is a point I really want you to listen to. 
as to righteousness under the law blameless. I'm a good person. Look how good I am. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He realizes he has no righteousness. His law, as he, the law has exposed him as a fraud. He has no righteousness, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. I've got no righteousness of my own. I'm not doing spiritually good. I need Jesus to be good for me. I need his righteousness. So the ironic thing here about becoming a Christian, people think, okay, from being, you know, you're a Christian, you think, you know, when you're non-Christian, you think, okay, I'm a really bad person, and then I come a Christian, I think I'm a good person. No, 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 no. It's the opposite way around. When you're a non-Christian, you think, I'm doing pretty spiritually good here. I'm a, I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. Then you come to your Christian, you're like, ah, uh, not so good. I'm a bad person. So what people think is actually the opposite. I'm a bad person. I'm a train wreck. I need Jesus. So coming to a Christian is the opposite of thinking like, oh, now I'm really good. Like, you know, Christians get really bad press about that, but it's the opposite is true. And so you see Paul here, now describing himself in Romans 7, 13 through 14, describing himself as a Christian struggling with sin. And this is something we can all relate to. Do that, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. The law didn't bring death, it was his sin. It was sin producing death in me uh, uh, through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, the law shows you how bad you are. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Makes you worse, Right? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, he's speaking of himself, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Some people, they hear that and they're like, this has got it. This has got to be an unbeliever right here. Because, I mean, can a believer really say of himself that they are of the flesh sold under sin? That sounds like a unbeliever. So this is not about a believer. This is about an unbeliever. You see, the worry and the issue with that is that Paul here in Greek, it's very clear, you can see even, even, even in the English, Greek was the original language the New Testament was written in, but you can see in the English here that he is using in Greek a present tense, first person way of speaking. He's saying, I, as in me, Paul. He's saying, not me, Paul, but you know I'm speaking from his reference point. Present tense, I am of the flesh, sold, over, uh, sold under sin, Presently, He is sold under sin presently and he's of the flesh. Now, he is not denying that Christians don't have the Holy Spirit, they don't do good things, but the thing is you, we all have to recognize, the thing is that we all have to acknowledge is that we still do sin every five minutes. We're not thinking perfect thoughts. We're thinking jealous thoughts, angry thoughts, frustrated thoughts, impatient thoughts when the sermon's going to end. This is really, you know, we have all sorts of thoughts, right, that go through our heads, even when we're at church, Okay. So even we as believers, we still have our old sinful nature and we struggle against it by the power of the Holy Spirit. We still have this. And I, I don't know about you, but I can really relate. I mean, I lose my patience with my kids almost constantly. They're four and six, 
right? I mean, last, last Sunday, you guys saw Kenny running down the aisle. He almost wanted to assault me, you know? I don't even know what he was doing. Um, and so, you know, we, we all have, you know, lose patience with our kids. We struggle. And, you know, what's amazing is that if you look at what Paul describes himself, you're of the flesh, sold under sin, this lines up perfectly with how Paul viewed himself at the very end of his life as an old man who's about to die. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is Paul at the end of his life. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, of whom I am the greatest, of whom I am the chief of sinners. That is in Greek in the present tense. You can see it in English too. It is in the present tense that he's saying that. Can you say that of yourself? That you're the chief of sinners? Because Paul says that as an old man, and let me tell you, he's a lot more godlier than you and I. He says that as an old man at the end of his life. So it isn't really hard to believe when you think about it that a guy who calls himself the chief of sinners, that he would also say that he is of the flesh, sold under sin. It's not surprising that he calls himself, that he is being honest with himself, and we as Christians should be honest with what's going on in our lives. Verses... Uh, 15 to 16. For I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So he's saying here that he hates doing sin, but that ultimately he affirms, confirms, and agrees with the law of God. Again, the present tense is used all throughout. This is just how you naturally would read it. If you were to naturally read this the first time going through it, you would say this is a believer struggling with sin. And we know Paul agrees with the law here. He agrees with it as a Christian. He struggles keeping it. Now, non-Christians, I've had this brought up a lot of times, non-Christians, I want to admit to you, can struggle keeping various moral codes that they've agreed to adopt. No one denies that reality. Everybody struggles with something, even if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. So I get that. But you see, a non-Christian does not agree with everything in the law of God. They don't agree with everything in the moral law. Like, for instance, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If they're a non-Christian, they're not going to agree to devote their lives to the God of the Bible. By definition, they're not, a, they're not following Christ. They're not a Christian. Or to glorify Christ and all that they do. So... Yeah, this is not denying the reality, but see, non-Christians follow their own standards that they adopt. And this is talking about someone who follows the law of God as expressed in the Bible here. And as a matter of fact, John says that non-Christians hate the light, which certainly includes Jesus and following his truth and law here. And this is what John says in, in John 3, 19 through 20. You can see here by how he talks about the non-Christian perspective, how the person in Romans 7 here could never be a non-believer. It's not even possible by, by how he talks about them. It says, uh, 3, 19, and this is judgment, that the light has come into the world and that people love the darkness. They love it rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. So non-Christians don't agree with the law of God. They don't agree with the light. The light repels them, doesn't draw them to it. And so they do not want to glorify Christ in their lives. And so this makes it very clear. He, Paul is describing his experience as a Christian, not as a non-Christian. Verse uh, Romans seven seventeen. he says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So Paul is using this experience we all face. You, know, you do something that's really just like wicked and sinful. You snap at somebody. You say just a horrendously unkind uh, thing to somebody. And you just become just completely 
disgusted with yourself. It's like, oh, you just want to disassociate from it. You're like, that wasn't me. You know, people do this all the time when they do something really stupid when they were young or something like this. So, you know, I'm no longer like that. That was a different person. You guys hear someone say that before? Raise your hand if you've seen someone or heard someone say that before. It's a very common experience. I guess not that common. Only a few people raise their hands, but you know what I mean. It's, it's pretty common. And so while, you know, it's not, you're not technically meaning that there's like a totally different person, we, we get that they're saying that they're so disgusted with their past actions that they want to say that it's a completely different person. This is kind of like the case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You guys have heard of that one, I'm sure. It's, but, I mean, this idea that you have these two competing personalities inside of you, right? Dr. Jekyll's a good guy. Hyde is like this crazy, murderous, like, nut, right? And so, you know, there's just this conflict between these two personalities going on here. And, it, and, you know, it's very interesting is the guy who wrote that was actually a Christian. He was asked how he came up with the idea of, of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And he said he got it from himself. Because we feel like there's just these two principles inside of us fighting and bucking heads and everything. And, uh, and, this, and so we have our redeemed aspects in our, in our nature and our fallen aspects. And they're fighting. You know, there's a war. The, the Holy Spirit is in us, and yet we are still sinful. So there's this, this wrestling match, this war that's occurring inside of us. And, it, and we, 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 we give into our sinful nature. We're like so disgusted sometimes by it. We don't want, we're like, that wasn't me that did that. We want to disassociate from it. And Paul describes more of the struggle in Romans 7 and 18. He says... For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. So in the sinful aspects of his nature, there's nothing good in that. He's not saying with his entire being is the Holy Spirit's in him. So he's not, he's saying with respect to my flesh, nothing good in there. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Feels like my life every day. So these are the sinful remaining aspects here that he's discussing. And that, that certainly is my experience. And, you know, sometimes you want to do the right thing and you're just like, Man, I'm just, I'm suffering here, struggling with this. And uh, Romans 7, 19 through 21, he goes further into this. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Feels like my life every day, you know, goodness. Now, if I do not, uh, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who did it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law, a principle, that when I want to do the right thing, Evil lies close at hand. I mean, that's, that's how we feel. You know, you're like hanging out. You feel like you're doing a good job. You're like, I'm so great. I'm doing a great job. I'm a rock star. Today's like my super spiritual day. I got my devotions in. I got my cup of coffee. So I'm happy and nice to people, you know. And then all of a sudden, sin crops up and says, hey, let's do something stupid. Let's do something real stupid, you know. Why don't you say something dumb to your wife, huh? You know, you're like, no. It's a trap, you know. <laughs> That's how you feel, right? And so there hasn't been a day where we have not gone through that experience in some ways or another. And so it's a comfort to know that Paul, the apostle, like the, the, one of the best Christians in history, is struggling with what I face every day. And so he goes on in verse 22. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And that right there is a dead giveaway very clear dad giveaway that this is a believer here in Romans chapter 7. He says in his inner being, he does not delight in that. His flesh is all over the place, but he truly on the inside does not delight in that wickedness. He loves what is right and true at the core of who he is. He loves 
pleasing God in his law. He loves God. But there's a struggle going on, this intense struggle. And what's amazing is you know that this is not a non-Christian because in Romans 8, it says that non-Christians are in the flesh and they, they, they cannot even please God, spiritually speaking. I mean, they do nice things for their neighbors. I know plenty of non-Christians that are perfectly pleasant people, but they can't spiritually please God, but the person here wants to spiritually please God. Romans 8, 7 through 8, it says, For the mind, this is down below. So this is a reference of Paul talking about the state of unbelievers right here in the book of Romans, the next chapter over. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to, the, to God. So it, it doesn't delight in God in the inner being. It's hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's not even able to. Those who are in the flesh, those who are a non-Christian, cannot please God spiritually speaking. That's what it's saying here. So it's pretty clear, yeah, that this person's a Christian because they, in the inward parts, delight in God's truth. And that's pleasing to God. And it says here, in the spiritual sense, unbelievers cannot please God. So verse 23 goes on to say, as we know, this is clearly now, it's, it's kind of taking shape and form. So we're reading more in the text. It becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. This is the Christian life. This is what it looks like. But I see my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive of the law of sin that dwells in my members. This is a war going on here, the war against sin. It's a daily battle. You see, there's just so many people out there who think that Christians don't sin and that, you know, when we become Christian, we have to come off like we are perfect and we're just terrific and we got our act together. The truth is we don't. We never are perfect in this life. We're always going to be struggling with sin. I'm sorry, it's exhausting. It's never going to end. That part is not going to end. That's why we do look forward to heaven and being with Christ. And so it is a requirement, if you are a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, it is a requirement to be saved, to acknowledge that you, right now, as you're sitting here, you have sin in your life. I have sin in my life. It says in John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You're try, if you're a Christian, you try to walk around as if, oh, I'm so amazing, I'm so perfect, I'm such a big deal. You know, whatever. You're living a false and deceptive way right there. You're, you're being fake and self-righteous, which is fundamentally, and here's the point, fundamentally inconsistent with the gospel of grace. The difference between a Christian and non-Christian is not that one sin and the other doesn't. People think that. That's a confusion. The difference is how they respond to the sin in their lives. The Christian fights against his sin. He doesn't just give in to it. The non-Christian will give in to their sin. They can be comfortable in their sin. The Christian is made uncomfortable with his sin. He cannot be comfortable in it. He cannot stay in it and be like, oh, this is great, I love this. He cannot do that because he delights in the law of God in his inner being. Whereas a non-Christian can just, they can, they can live in sin for periods of time and be fine with that. Now, in the next verse, Paul makes a stunning profession of how he feels about himself here. He says, after he just realizes the struggle, in exhaustion, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Can you call yourself, as Paul has here, a very spiritual man, can you call yourself a wretched man or a wretched woman? I can tell you, I will admit, I myself am wretched I'm a wretched man, just like Paul. I am a train wreck. I am a chief of sinners. And we as Christians, we have to lower our guard. We have to drop any 
pretensions of self-righteousness and openly admit that we are the chief of sinners, that we are wretched man or wretched woman that I am, whatever it is. I love the way the famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he says, a Christian is not a good man. He's a vile wretch who has been saved by the grace of God. And I think if we are, as Christians, we're more consistent with that profession and posture, then the church would not be so hard-pressed and have bad press that we're some, like, you know, you know really uptight, self-righteous, full-of-ourselves, prideful people. You see, the Word of God has no place for that. See, God is careful in how he lays it out here through the Apostle Paul that we have no righteousness other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's, we can't be self-righteous. The righteousness we get is outside of us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And instead of having a self-righteous attitude of pride, we should come as we talk to our non-Christian friends and neighbors with openness, humility, thankfulness for what Jesus has done for us. Never prideful or self-righteous. Now people ask, okay, Nate, this still doesn't make any sense. Why is Paul so hard on himself as a believer? I mean, it's the Apostle Paul. The guy got almost killed for preaching Christ. I mean, he was killed, actually, at the end of his life. You know, he's whipped and brutalized and beat, and he lives a life of poverty serving Christ. This guy is supposed to be godly guy par excellence. How in the world does he have the same struggle as me? How can this be the Apostle Paul? Because we, we kind of have, feel that disconnect with how he lived his life. I mean, this guy is really close to God. I mean, I'm not as godly as he is. And the reason why Paul can have the very same struggle that we have is that he is very holy. And so even the smallest of sins, like using my like, water bottle cap as an illustration, like it's a prop, even the smallest of sins, right? <laughs> it's so weird. Um, uh, so he, yeah, even the smallest of sins bothers him, annoys him, drives him nuts. This is like as a bride you know, who is about to get married, Brides are sensitive about a lot of things in the, in the wedding because it's their special day, and I, that makes total sense. But if you got like a little small, tiny black mark on your wedding dress as a bride, you'd go nuts because you're sensitive to it. Even though it'd be very small, it would drive you nuts. And so that's how it is with a holy person like Paul. The smallest of sin drives him nuts because he is so holy. And so a sign that you're growing in the Christian life is that you are more and more sensitive to sin as time goes on. So things that used to not make you feel uncomfortable all of a sudden make you feel uncomfortable. And so you start to notice sin that wasn't even there before. I don't know if you've been to like a carnival or a circus or an arcade. You know, you got the gopher machine that they pop up. Does anybody remember that? Yeah, the gopher machine. And you pop one. I remember I went to Circus Circus with Kenny, and we were down there visiting. And, you know, they have all these games and things pops up. And so, you know, he hammers one and two other pop up. And it's just, it's frustrating, right? That's how sin is. You're like, oh, I got that one down. Then two more pop up. You're like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is terrible. And so what's amazing is that that's how it is, is that you can conquer one sin and two more pop up. And so the growing Christian life is not feeling more and more righteous and self-righteous as you go. But ironically, growing in the Christian life is realizing that you're the, the the, how much worse your sin is and though, and the sin comes up more and more and you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize I had all these problems and you're made more and more uncomfortable by it and so you depend more and more on Jesus Christ for grace, for mercy, for forgiveness and there's actually a very famous video on YouTube. I don't know if who's seen it or not but it, you can look it up, I'm sure. And it says Christian sanctification which just amounts to Christian growth and it's got like an old guy on like an escalator, he's going up the escalator, he falls down and tumbles on the escalator, and the escalator's still taking him up. 
So he's growing, but he's tumbling and falling. And that, in my mind, is the best illustration of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. You're falling down and stumbling, and you're going up. And so you don't feel like you're getting more righteous. You actually feel, in some ways, like, oh, man, I'm, I'm really bad. I need Jesus more. And so you grow more because you grow closer to Christ through so your imperfection and sin. And so Paul ends here, Romans 7, verse 25. I think we've made it through here. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So he gives thanks to Jesus for redeeming him, for saving him. He reaches out to him in his struggle, but then he goes right back to the struggle, doesn't he? So oh, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then he just he gives thanks to Jesus over and over again. And that's, this, is, this is the struggle we face every day. This is what the life of a Christian is like. And we, I've had the most godly people ask me, am I Christian? Just because they struggle with sin. And they don't feel like they're saved. And uh, you have to know that you are saved. If you struggle with sin, you believe in Christ, you trust in him for your salvation. You don't listen to the lies of the enemy that just because you struggle with sin that you're not a believer, that you're not saved. If you are struggling with sin right now in your life so much, just know that if you were to die, if you were to like say, I don't know, leave the, not leave the church, but you know, leave the building physically and go outside today, and you were to die today, whether it's you know, heart attack or car accident, there's a whole lot of ways you can die. So to, so to come find out, right? So then there's a whole lot of ways you can die. You know, if you were to die today, even though you've struggled with sin the past week or for whatever time you've been a Christian, you would go to heaven. You would go to heaven. You're like, well, Nate, you don't know the sins I struggle with. I struggle with really bad things. I struggle with hard things in my life. And that's true. I don't know everybody's heart and mind. I'm not the Lord. But that doesn't matter. If you are struggling and fighting against that, you are a Christian. Your sins are forgiven. Even though it's hard for you to believe, know that Christ is over, able to overcome and forgive all of your sin. And I love the way Martin Luther, he said it best. He's, he's got so many singers as quotes. He says, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know of one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I also shall be. You can say that as you're struggling, because this is an experience that I have, we all have, and know this, that whatever sins you've committed in the past or whatever sins you're struggling with right now, Paul, as he goes through his struggle with sin, he says something very important and fundamental. He says right after this, this is the next verse over, this is Romans 8.1, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation no guilt, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this morning you have a declaration over you that you're not condemned because Jesus was condemned in your place on that cross. And so by faith in Jesus, you're not condemned. You're the guilt, the accusations of the enemy will never stick to you ever because you've been cleared by God Almighty. And you'll never be punished. There's no fear in your life ever. And so... God shows the greatest grace to Paul who called himself the chief of sinners. And if you trust in him, he will forgive you of all of your sins, just like he's forgiven me of all my sins and of the apostle Paul who lived an amazing life, but he still struggled with sin. So if you trust in Jesus, there's no condemnation, there's eternal life, and there's forgiveness in Christ. Let's pray.